It's time to get inside the Giants huddle. Huddle up, huddle up, huddle up. On Giants.com. Here we go, here we go. And the Giants mobile Get them in there, let's go. Part of the Giants podcast network. Welcome to the newest edition of the Giants huddle podcast. My name is John Schmelk. The man joining us today is Austin Gale from Pro Football Focus. We caught up with him a couple minutes at the Combine. Now we'll get a little longer chat with him about the 2022 NFL Draft class. Just a reminder, you can find the Giants Little Podcast on all your favorite podcast platforms in the Giants mobile app at Giants.com slash podcast. And also, just a reminder, folks, draft season is no longer popping up on the Giants Little Podcast feed. So if you enjoy draft season, which is our NFL Draft podcast here, it's me, Tony Pauline. It's Eric Crocker. Make sure you go subscribe on your podcast platform. You can find it on the Giant platforms as well. Now we're joined by Austin Gal from Pro Football Focus. Austin, it's been a month or so since the Combine. It's good to see you again, man. How are you in lovely Cincinnati? Doing fantastic. Surviving the weather here in Cincinnati. <clears throat> Very good. Just want a reminder that uh, Austin Gale is PFF's director of content. He's the host of the tailgate which is PFS, I guess, is, is it still technically an NFL draft podcast? I need to do it's an everything podcast now. College football, NFL, draft, we cover it all. Again, remember, PFS is also releasing a four-episode podcast series with projected number one overall pick Aiden Hutchinson titled Hutch on Wednesday, April 13th. More than 50 interviews with some of the most prominent voices in college football in the NFL draft space. Be sure to subscribe and listen to Hutch wherever you find your podcast. So, Austin, I know you've been working your ass off on this. Tell us about it. Yeah, Hutch is going to be awesome. Like, I mean, kind of as you said there, the over 50 interviews, it's really given me insane perspective on a projected number one overall pick, right? It's been interesting to see <clears throat> all that goes into being that kind of player. Aiden Hutchinson is a phenomenal athlete, a phenomenal person off the field. And I think you hear that consistency in everyone you talk to. Talk to his parents, his sisters, his uh, coaches, Jim Harbaugh, Don Brown, his teammates, Quiddy Pay, Josh Harris. I mean, there's so many talented, talented people that speak so highly of Aiden Hutchinson. It's been phenomenal to hear just his perspective around the league and his perspective around, you know, the, the people he's played with. And I think it's going to be a really, really good look at all that it takes, right, to be a number one overall pick in the NFL. Who was your favorite interview and what was your favorite nugget going through all those interviews, talking to people about him? Uh, you know, I, I think the, the, the linebacker there at Michigan, Josh Ross, really was a special interview. You know, he was someone that I think is going to get underrated in this draft class for whatever reason, but someone who's such a leader on that team and spoke really highly of the Michigan State-Michigan rivalry, the Ohio State rivalry, and provided really good perspective as a front row seat, right, to Aiden Hutchinson. You know, <laughs> Aiden Hutchinson's making, making people, you know, miss all day long up front, and then Josh is right behind him watching it all go down. I think he provided a lot of perspective. Really good. All right, Austin. Well, let's start with the edge rushers then. I know we, we kind of talked about Hutch a little bit when we were at the Combine. So let's start here. I know you guys at PFF really value, I guess this is a good place to start, pass mm -hmm. rush production, right? That's one of the things from college to the NFL that you guys think is very predictive. Yeah. So what do you think of this idea of Trayvon Walker popping into the top four? Because his, you know, not just sack production, we're talking, you know, pressures, quarterback hits. It really wasn't there at Georgia. A lot mm -hmm. of that is rolled. He wasn't asked to be that guy coming off the edge. Yeah. So how do you guys parse Walker's rise and kind of how you guys look at him, given his lack of production as a pass rusher in college? Yeah, evaluating any player at any position, right? I think a lot of what you're trying to do is mitigate risk and, and find comfort in easy, project, projectable kind of traits or skill sets, right? With Trayvon Walker, his production in the NFL has to be a projection because you haven't seen him play a lot of true edge snaps. He only has you know, roughly 550 edge snaps playing outside the tackles. You know, compared to Aiden Hutchinson, he has 1,500 in his career and he missed an entire 2020 season due to injury, right? I think Trayvon Walker has not played a lot 
He's not played a lot of the specific role he's probably going to play in the NFL. And he wasn't asked to do a lot of the things, pinning his ears back and rushing the passer, like he's probably going to do in the NFL. So you have to project a lot of those things. Now, you know, it is projectable is athleticism and size, right? He's just this rare combination of size and athleticism that teams flock to that you don't get every year, right? This type of size and athleticism doesn't fall outside the top five because of what he can be in the NFL. And I think a lot of teams will buy into that athleticism, those traits that they think they can mold into a productive pass rusher, productive player on the edge in the NFL. I worry about it, right? Especially when compared to other guys that have had really good production and are still high caliber athletes, right? Trayvon Walker is one of the best athletes in this class, but Aiden Hutchinson, no slouch either. Tavon Thibodeau of Oregon, another high-end athlete. You can buy into high-end athletes with good production over Trayvon Walker. It's why I see him more as the edge three, edge four in this class. And I would see him as edge two or even edge one. You know, there is some consideration. You have to think from the Jacksonville Jaguars to look at Trayvon Walker, a one-of-one -one type of player from a traits perspective compared to Aiden Hutchinson and Kayvon Thibodeau. So I worry about it a bit, but it's it's more because you're you're going to have to project a lot more. With Aiden Hutchinson, you've seen him, you know, play at the highest level and produce at the highest level. It's the highest graded player in all of college football this past year. And also someone that has you know, consistently produced at a high level, even dating back to his true sophomore season in 2019, where he's one of the few players to beat up on Tristan Wirfs, who we all know is one of the best offensive tackles in the NFL today. Yeah, you know, I'm with you. And, you know, you talk about, well, maybe he's more of a, a edge three or four for you. And I'm with you. Like, I have trouble picking him over Kayvon, you know, Thibodeau. Look, I, I don't have all the scouting information that these other guys have about, you know, you know, the the stuff not not you know off the field not him being a bad kid but just you know coachable you know whether or not he thinks he's arrived that sort of stuff yeah. but if you just go off the tape i, I have trouble just if, if i'm sitting there trying to sell if i'm a scout trying mm -hmm. to sell to my gm but other than the athletic testing how i would sell if i want an edge rusher picking walker over thibodeau and i'm even and, and i know you guys don't have him as high as i do on my board but mm -hmm. jermaine johnson i know it's just one year of production yeah. you watch his tape you see all right that's going to work in the NFL, right? He has production for a pretty big program in Florida State. His testing was also excellent. That got lost in everything at the combine. His testing was really good. You know, if you're really looking, look, I get it. If you want to pick Walker and you want to move him in different spots, use him as a three tech on, on third downs and rush him and do different stuff. I get why he's valuable. But if you're looking for your pure edge, a guy you're going to stick at that right end uh, and a four, three front, or, you know, 3-4, you know, then you reduce to a 4-3 in, in nickel and dime spots. I get why you would say, all right, I feel much better about Jermaine Johnson and, and Kayvon Thibodeau in that role consistently NFL right now than I do Trayvon Walker. Yeah, I think with Trayvon Walker, and you brought up a good point, like what what do I have to bring to the table if I'm convincing a GM beyond, you know, beyond trades? And I have not had an opportunity to speak with Trayvon Walker, but something else that I think you have to bring to that table is, you know, you know uh, evidence of coachability, right? Sure. Evidence that he wants to get better. And like talking to Kirby Smart and the Georgia coaches about his role in the NFL and what he can play, because I don't think a lot of coverage has been made of what Trayvon Walker can do to improve and, you know, his willingness to improve and all this kind of stuff. I think interviews can be really helpful in that regard. As for Jermaine Johnson, you know, the only reservation I have with him is that a lot of his best production came late in his kind of developmental curve, right? He's going to play his rookie season at 23 years old. You saw a lot of you know, polish in his game this past year, was a high-end producer for Florida State. But again, you didn't see it until he was about two years older than everybody else he was playing against. And that 
always worries me a little bit. I think age-adjusted production is very, very predictive when going from college to the NFL, especially at the quarterback position, pass rusher, and even offensive tackle. Seeing guys perform at a high level, like this breakout rating or dominator rating, when they are younger, often translates to success in the NFL because it speaks to what they're capable of doing as their body fully develops. Now, that's not knock on Jermaine Johnson. I still see him as a top 15, top 20 player, but that's probably the comparison. I mean, I'd still probably have Walker over over Johnson purely on what Walker can be. And also, you know, people speak to Walker's floor, right? And he's always a boomer bust type of player. And, you know, he's not going to ever be, you know, when you have those traits, right? It's very difficult to suck, right? It's very difficult to be (laughs) terrible in the NFL. And I think his floor to me is playing the same role he's playing at Georgia and having a lot of success as a run defender, right? Like if if, if he can't like stick it out on the edge and, and truly win with pass rushing moves, play him head up or inside the you know offensive tackles and watch him cook against the run because he's easily the best runner of the top three, top four run, uh, you know, edge defenders in this class. No, Austin, I agree. I wouldn't consider him a boomer bus guy because I do think because of the traits and his run-stopping ability, his floor is actually you know fairly high. You know He's not going to be a guy that's going to be a negative for you. He just might not be a big-time pass rusher, which is, of course, why you're drafting him there. But yeah, no, I'm with you. I, I think there'll be a place for him in the league uh, one way or the other. What's your feel right now? You know, we all kind of look at these mock drafts. We look at, you know, these people, they kind of have their reports around the country. We're starting to have the 30 visits now, so we're getting a feel for what NFL teams are thinking. Do you think three edge rushers are going to be the top four picks, or do you think one of those guys is going to drop down to the Giants at five or seven? I think one of those guys will. I think because the offensive tackle class, right? I think Evan Neal and Iki Aquanu will be other top five picks in this class. I'm pretty confident in that. I think there's a good chance Malik Willis could go in the top five, top six picks. I don't think he gets past Carolina if he's still on the board at number six overall. So I think there will be some opportunity for one of these top edge guys to fall. I think the other feel I have with the offensive tackle class is I, you know, I said Iki Aquanu and Evan Neal. The league, in my opinion, is not as high on Charles Cross as maybe the media is, or especially. PFF is right. The Mississippi State offensive tackle is PFF's number one offensive tackle in this class. And Bruce Feldman of the Athletic, who's one of the most connected people in this industry, didn't even have Charles Cross going in the first round. What that I know you saw me, that, right? What, what what that screams to me is someone's getting a damn good player at the back end of the first or top of the second round. And Charles Cross is indeed falling that far, which I think is good news for a lot of teams looking for high end offensive tackle talent, specifically in pass protection. Do you think it's people afraid of the scheme with Charles Cross? Are they having Andre Dillard flashbacks? Is is, is, is he getting blamed for somebody else's past sins? I, I think so. I, I think teams aren't right to do that, right? But there isn't a lot of pass set versatility in his tape. I mean, because you don't have to, right? It's the same scheme that you're doing. It's a lot of pass, you know, pass sets, but it's not necessarily ones where you're doing a lot of different types. And that's where I think you are concerned with, you know, where teams, where coaches will get concerned, right? Andrew, Andre Dillard vibes or whatever it may be. I think there's also like, I, I just think if you go back and watch the tape, he is objectively an excellent athlete and a really good pass protector. And I, I think his run defense also gets underrated. I know they didn't run the football a ton in that offense, but I think his run defense gets vastly underrated. And I think, again, if he's falling to where you see some of these, you know, these mock drafts going, where it's in that 20 to 32 range or even the top of the second round, I think, I think that's going to be one of the bigger steals of the draft. Oh, hell, Austin. I mean, <laughs> if Aquano and Neal are off the board, I'm not sure he's getting past the Giants at seven, to be quite honest with you. Like, yeah, they are they are in desperate need of a tackle. And, you know, now you're going to have in the middle, and especially in the middle of the first round, right? You have the Saints that just moved up. They have a need for a left tackle. Mm-hmm. You have the Chargers, who probably don't want to enjoy the Storm Norton experience for another year. Yes. They're in business for a tackle. Um, Tony Pauline, who's one of our, you know, uh, draft analysts over here, he says 
that the, the Ravens aren't going to let Trevor Penning get past them in the middle of the first round. So with the way tackle is such a position of need here in the NFL, you could argue that's the scarcest position right now. It's impossible yeah. to find two good NFL tackles. If he gets past like 15, I'm going to fall off my chair. That would shock me. No, 100%. I think this is a really good offensive tackle class, but there is a drop-off, right? There's a drop-off oh, yeah. across Aquanu and Neil, in my opinion. Even Bernard Ryman, who my, my co-host uh, Mike Renner is really high on, I think is a drop-off from those top three. Trevor Penning, love the grit, love the nastiness, also a really good athlete, but there's some polish to his game that you just don't see among those like tier one offensive tackles. So there is a drop-off, and I think teams realize that. I'd be stunned if all of Cross, Aquanu, Neil, and Penning aren't drafted inside the top 20, honestly, top yeah. 21 picks. Like I really do think that it's a value position, right? It's one of the highest paid positions in the NFL. And there are a lot of really good off the tackle prospects in this class. Is there a Tristan Wirfs? No. Is there a Mackay Becton? Probably not, but there are legitimate, I think top 10 caliber, top five caliber off the tackle prospects in Quan Neal and Cross. And then even beyond that, I think Ryman and Penning are first round type of players. All right, let's say something weird happens. The first four picks are the three pass rushers in, let's say, Kyle Hamilton or Sauce Gardner, right? Mm -hmm. And the Giants actually have their pick of the litter, right? They're looking at Evan Neal. They're looking at Charles Cross. They're looking at Iki Aquanu. Now, the Giants have Andrew. Let, let's put this as a stipulation. The Giants like Andrew Thomas at left tackle. They don't want to move him. He played well mm -hmm. last year. They don't want to mess with that. So they're trying to draft a guy that's going to play right tackle for them. How does that, as you as a draft analyst, change your calculation as to which one of those three guys is the best fit for the Giants as an offensive tackle. Yeah, I, I, it's tough, right? I think then immediately you go to Aquanu. I think Aquanu can is is very scheme versatile, and I think you could start at right tackle and have a lot of success. I think the last player you probably think of is Charles Cross. You know, you probably look. That's at why Neil I asked the question. <laughs> yeah, you probably you probably think at Neil and Aquanu as the top guys to go opposite of Andrew Thomas. And I love those picks for the Giants, right? I think a dream scenario for the Giants is an edge and an offensive tackle at five and seven. I, I think that's the dream for them. And that I think could go Thibodeau and Neil. It could go Walker and Neil, Walker and Aquanu. That is the dream top five, you know, top seven uh, draft for the Giants, right? They really should come out of this with high end, I think blue chip caliber talent in the trenches, which again, I always go back to position value. It's something that we talk a lot about here at PFF. The two highest paid non-quarterback positions in the NFL on second and third contracts are off the tackle and pass rusher. You get those on rookie contracts with fifth year options. It opens up so much cap flexibility for you as you start to make decisions at the quarterback position, right? Maybe you do look to go aggressive and and add a veteran on a bigger contract than obviously what Daniel Jones is making, or if you look to go package some stuff up and go grab a quarterback at the top of next year's class, right? I think they need to prioritize high value positions so they can continue to look at cap flexibility. I think every team drafting inside the top 10, top 15 has to heavily factor in positional value. So they're maximizing the surplus kind of return you're getting on these picks. You draft an off-ball linebacker, guess what? The highest paid off-ball linebacker in the NFL doesn't make more than the 20th ranked tackle. You know what I mean? Like it's not, you are getting surplus value by drafting these high value positions. And you could throw corner into the mix there too, right? If Sauce exactly. is sitting there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think corner is another one too. I think corner and receiver are probably the second tier of like premium positions in the NFL, especially receiver now, right? The receiver market has completely changed with Christian Kirk getting 18 million. You see Devontae Adams, the highest paid receiver. Just a couple of days later, Tyreek Hill's like, I want to be the highest paid receiver. I think teams are realizing now eliteness 
at the receiver position is so important to success, specifically deep postseason success, that the best receivers in the NFL are getting paid. It's very opposite to offensive line, right? You don't need elite talents in the offensive line. You need average to above average talents and no weak links in that group. That's a good reason why, obviously, like interior offensive linemen are not among the highest paid in the NFL. You know, the highest paid center doesn't make more than, what, $14, $15 million a year, whereas I think Devontae Adams is now doubling that. And Tyreek Hill is now doubling that. So it does show the receiver position, if you can get elite traits and elite projectability at, at, uh, in the draft, specifically in the top 10, top 15 in this year's draft, I think there's another, that's another value position to target, especially if you know, the, you know, the offensive tackle you wanted or the edge rusher you wanted isn't available. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to jump back to the, um, the tackle class in a second, but to your point on wide receivers, I'm with you. I think the elite wide receiver is going to get paid, right? Whether you're talking about Tyreek Hill, Devontae Adams, you go you know, six years ago, the Julio Joneses, 10 years ago, the Calvin Johnsons. But I wonder, Austin, if you have that second-tier wide receiver, like that Amari Cooper, for example, mm -hmm. do you say, well, you know what? I can find a really good wide receiver in the second round, end of the first round, pretty much every year. So while the guy that's elite, you say, all right, pay that dude. He's a difference maker. If you have, like, just a good but not great guy, is that someone that maybe I don't want to throw 18, 19, 20 million dollars a year at because I feel like I can find that guy on the cheap in the draft for five years just because this is such a uh, assembly line production now, you get five, six good wide receivers every year. Yeah, I, I do think that secondary and tertiary options you can pay a lot if you feel like they could be number ones elsewhere, right? I think paying high dollar for non-number one receivers is is not where I'd probably spend my money. I'd look to the draft to kind of make some of those decisions. And in this receiver class too, I think there's a lot of high-end wide receiver two type of talent, yeah. right? I don't think any of them are better than ja Jamar Chase, Jalen Waller, Devontae Smith in the previous year's class. I'd probably rank all of them below that trio. And I think even Rashad Bateman is in this tier with Garrett Wilson, Chris Olave, but we look at what's going to be available on day two this year, a lot of size. George Pickens, uh, Justin Ross, you have Jalen Tolbert of South Alabama, Christian Watson, North Coast State, likely a, a second round uh, pick, um, uh, Alec Pierce of Cincinnati. Size and athleticism at the receiver position on day two is sometimes hard to find, but because this receiving class is so loaded, there's probably five, you know, five six, seven guys that could ultimately go in the first round, maybe even eight. That, in my opinion, does you know push does push some really good players down the board just by nature of other people prioritizing other positions. All right, so you talked about day two. Let's jump back to offensive tackle. This is why I'm never one to say, "Oh, you have to take this position because you know that that's how you make bad picks." But given where the Giants pick in the strength of the class and the drop off that you mentioned in offensive tackle, I've done a deep look at all these second round offensive tackles. I'm worried about all of them in one way, shape, or form. Once the Giants get to that 36 pick range, Austin, do you how confident do you feel that they'll be able to find an offensive tackle on day two if they don't get one at five or seven that can step in and play and not be bad in this first year? Yeah, I don't know. I think once you get to day two in this class specifically, I think you're looking at a lot of like developmental offensive tackles, guys that I don't think can start right away and have a lot of success. Like, are there guys that I'd like to develop as day two options at that position? Sure. sure. Abraham Lucas, Washington State. Um, you have Kellen Deesh, who's got a really weird frame, the Arizona State offensive tackle, but it's graded really well and it's improved over the course of his career. Tyler Smith at Tulsa, another guy that I think, 
maybe you're not investing a day one, but you can invest a day two, but you probably expect those guys not to be you know, high-end graded players or high producers until year two, year three. And Zach Tom of Wake Forest is getting some love in this class. Also, Luke Decky, the other Central Michigan offensive tackle opposite of Bernard Ryman. Chris Paul of, 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 of Tulsa as well is another one that I really do like. I, I, you can, in my opinion, get projectable traits at the offensive tackle position. And I mean, we didn't even mention the big Minnesota kid, Daniel Falele, who has like rare traits, rare size uh, combination. And you have Max Mitchell too, right? He's another guy. (laughs) You can develop a lot of these guys that are going to be there on day two, but don't expect any of them to come in and start right away and have a lot of success. I think the start right away types are all going to be drafted in the first 20 picks, specifically Cross, Aquanu, and Neal. No, I'm with you 100%. All right, interior offensive line, different conversation on day two. Who are the guys that you like as, as potential plug-and-play guys in round two and round three in this year's it, draft? On the interior offensive line, you're saying? Yeah, go yeah, either guard or center. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's an interesting interior offensive line class. I think there are some tackle converts that I, I would love to start right away. I think one that's getting underrated is Darian Kennard of Kentucky. Big, monstrous offensive tackle for Kentucky that I think does best project due to foot speed and stuff like that to go into guard. I think he'll come in and have some success early on, has some proven you know proven production in the SEC. Zion Johnson, I don't think, is available on day two, but one of my favorite plug-and-play types. Kenyon Green has fall, fallen down boards due to you know, less-than-ideal athletic testing, but I think he can have success as a day two type of player. Now, Dylan Parham of Georgia, Jamari Salyer, uh, or Dylan Parham of Memphis and Jamari Salyer of, of Georgia are two, you know, into your offensive line prospects that I think can start really early. Cole Strange of Chattanooga is probably a sleeper in this class. Max Mitchell maybe kicks in the guard at the next level, the Louisiana offensive tackle. There is, in my opinion, a lot of starters at off-ball linebacker, defensive tackle and um, into your offensive line that you can get on day two. And it's great because those positions, as we've talked about a thousand times are low value positions on the positional value chart and guys that you can get starters on in picks 50 to 75 is a huge value to your team. And I think that's where a lot of teams should be looking if they do have needs at those places. Giant season tickets are on sale now for the 2022 season. In addition to ticket savings, membership benefits include access to exclusive events, experiences, pre-sales, and more. You can lock in your seats starting at just 100 bucks. Call 888-NYG-1925 or visit Giants.com slash tickets for more information. It's funny, you mentioned interior uh, linebackers and off-ball linebackers. Mm-hmm. I was looking at that the other day. We, we were doing our draft season show, and we had, you know, pick your favorite day two guy at each position. And I was looking at the interior linebackers, the off-ball guys, and I'm like, wow, this is hard, right? Like, Chad mm-hmm. Moma's a good player. Troy Anderson, Montana State, good player. Um, mm-hmm. Asamoa from uh, Oklahoma, good player. Uh, the the two Georgia guys, Quay Walker, right? Like, his, his yeah. physical profile is really going to appeal to NFL teams. He's long. I think he can even be an edge guy on, on passing downs. What do you make of that off-ball class on, on day two? Who are some of the guys you particularly like? Yeah, I think this is one of the best off-ball linebacker classes we've seen in a very long time. In addition to the top guys, I think both go in the first round, if not the first 40 picks, Devin Lloyd of Utah and the Kobe Dean of Georgia. you got day two options galore. Leo Chanel, the Wisconsin off-ball linebacker, is a freaky athlete, freaky three-cone, freaky short-shell type of guy that I think comes in right away and is a really, really good run defender, high floor type of player. Brian Asamoah of Oklahoma, you mentioned, is one of my favorite day two types as well. Chad Muma, Wyoming. I also really like the Montana State kid. Troy Anderson, I think, had a 399 short-shell yesterday. 
yesterday at his pro day. That's insane. Three nine nine. Those are insane figures for you know, oh, off linebackers. And I think so. When you go back to like, okay, thanks, Austin. It's the best linebacker class in a while. Why is that? We got a lot of athletes. Like Chanel is a great athlete. Anderson's a great athlete. Muma. You got Darian Beavers, who's a good athlete for his size. Brandon Smith, the Penn State. Quay Walker, Georgia. Channing Tindall doesn't even get brought up in the you know the conversation, and he's one of the most explosive players in this class. So it is a really good year to target starters at off-ball linebacker with good athleticism on day two, rounds two and three. I think a lot of teams will be looking at that position. It's similar to safety. I don't think there's a lot of first round talent at safety in this class. I think there's a good chance no safeties go in the first round after Kyle Hamilton. And then you look at round two, there could be this whole barrage of safeties coming off the board. Jalen Petrie, who maybe best projects as a slot corner, Lewis Seen of Georgia, Jaquan Brisker, Penn State. Like there's a lot of options at that position as well. How high do you think Dean and Lloyd are going to go? You know, I watched Lloyd and I see a good all-around player. It doesn't pop to me like some of these other guys do. But then you watch Nicobe Demon, some of that tape pops. But <laughs> I know we weighed in at almost 230 at the combine. You know, I've been around NFL locker rooms for almost 16 years now. He looks like a safety to me, Austin. <laughs> like you look at him and you say, I was around Landon Collins here. Landon Collins was thicker than that dude. All right. Like he yeah, just, yeah. he just, he just was. And I wonder if that's, I don't care about his height. He could be five, eight for all I care. If he could play, he could play. But at that thickness playing linebacker combined with the fact he hasn't tested. And I'm not sure if he's going to, maybe he does his training and the numbers aren't good. He's like, screw it. I'm just not going to do it. How do you think NFL teams are viewing those guys? How high do you think they're going to go? And do you think they have elite potential? Yeah, I think Devin Lloyd will be the first off-ball linebacker taken in this class. I think N'Kobe Dean, there are some size concerns with him, right? And I think not seeing him test in this pre-draft process hasn't helped him at all. I think he could come off the board in the 20 to 40 range, right? Even 25 to 40 range is where I see him coming off the board. 32 to the Detroit Lions is something that I think will be an option. As for Devin Lloyd, I really do buy into the Fred Warner comparisons. I think he's a very similar player to what Fred Warner was. I know those are two Utah guys, BYU and Utah, but I think he's a similar player to him and that he's this all around type that can excel in coverage, really good at run defense, instincts galore. I think he's an older prospect, can't find his age listed anywhere. I think that's usually a sign that he might be 23, 24 years old as a rookie, which is which is fine. But at the same time, it kind of speaks to his development and how, how efficient his game was this past year. Efficient feet, good instincts speaks to just how long he's been playing the position and how mature his body is, right? But I, I am really confident in Devin Lloyd coming in and being a really good starter. How valuable is that in the NFL though? You know, that, that's, where, that's where my mind goes. I feel comfortable if I have multiple first round picks and I'm taking him say I'm the Eagles right in the middle of the first round or even um at, at, you know now they have two different picks right not even not 15 16 19 I think they have the 16th and 18th pick this year so I I, I do like what you know him in the middle of the first round but again I only do it if I'm, I, I kind of have an embarrassment of riches at some of the high value positions right because he's a starter he's a high-end starter at a low value position I'm going to take that if I don't have an obvious win at offensive tackle maybe available or or wide receiver or corner if I'm already off some of the blue chip players in this class yeah I agree I think Lloyd's a, a guy with a pretty high floor I think he's a fairly safe pick given his tools and his length and he you know he used to be a safety too so you feel pretty good that he can cover and I think a linebacker given how hard it is to play the position I do think there's some value there you mentioned the eagle saints trade mm-hmm. what do you think aside from always trying to go for it what do you think the saints general approaches here trying to get the two picks this year are they going to try to package those to move up now or are they just trying to get two different positions in the middle of the round i know what the eagles are thinking what do you think the saints goals are given <clears throat> that trade they just made 
It's not too dissimilar to how what other people have highlighted, right? Mickey Loomis is such a huge fan of trading up in the draft. He, he locks into a player that he really wants to select, and he makes sure he can go get him, right? There's a lot, a lot of the players on their roster are guys that they've traded up for, like Marcus Davenport. Um, for yeah, Marcus Davenport. Um, it, it's it's really important. You know, they are so confident in their own evaluations, right? Like they feel probably that the Chargers are locking into similar positions. Off the tackle and receiver, that's where the Saints want to get better as well. Getting ahead of them matters, right? Getting getting a second first round pick, knowing that this receiver class and this offensive tackle class, there could be some options, maybe four or five guys that ultimately go in the first round at offensive tackle and six or seven guys being first to some of those is, is something that Mickey Loomis will prioritize, right? And someone's there like, why would you move up to go get the wide receiver three or wide receiver four in this class or the OT three or OT four in this class? That's not how Loomis sees it. Loomis is moving up to get a guy, a guy that he wants every single time. It's a specific player that he's really confident will have success in the NFL and he's going to do whatever it takes to go get it. It makes a ton of sense for the Eagles. It doesn't always make sense for the Saints. I don't think it makes sense a ton of sense, sense for the Saints, but Mickey Loomis is going to continue to do this through his tenure, right? He's like, I want to go get this player and this player. I'm going to make it happen. I don't think it's for a quarterback, though. I don't think they're you know, looking to package these picks now and get ahead of the Panthers at five and, and go grab a quarterback in this class. I think it's more that, hey, we're really high in on two or three of these receivers and two or three offensive tackles. Let's make sure we get ahead of the Chargers and, and, and go get some of these guys. Yeah, I agree with you. Because Austin, I got to be honest, I don't want to get too far off the beaten path here. This is a Giants podcast, but <laughs> I feel better about Jameis Winston playing well the next two or three years than I do any quarterback in this class. I got to be honest with you. No, I agree with you 100%. I think they're in, a, they're in a position too where they think they have such a good roster, right, that bringing in and developing a quarterback with a new coaching staff, I, I don't think that's where they want to go. I think they think they can be competitive in the NFC South, in the NFC, with Jameis Winston and a really talented roster. Ryan Ramchick, Alvin Kamara, Michael Thomas coming back, C.D. Deuce. Like, it's a very good team. It's a very good roster. Cameron Jordan still on that team as well. Marcus Davenport continues to get better as long as he's healthy. They don't feel like they're rebuilding in any way. And I think resetting at the quarterback position, specifically in this quarterback class, I don't think would be high value. Now, they've essentially punted on the 2023 class, though, right? Like, if, if they're looking to get a quarterback in next year's class, it's going to be that much more difficult. Oh, they can. I mean, you might as well just throw that out the window. That's not going to happen at this point. All right, you mentioned Kyle Hamilton, the safety class, before. <laughs> I feel like people have jumped a shark a little bit on him now. I, I get some of the worries where, all right, I don't trust him to guard uh, and cover a slot receiver. I don't know if he has the quickness and, and the speed to do that. But there are still plenty of things you can have a safety do that he's really good at, that he's going to be an excellent player. And, and I feel like some of the lazy scouting of, oh, bad 40, I can't draft him that high, is starting to bite some people in the rear end here. How yeah. much do you buy the drop? And where do you think he should go based on what he can do? Yeah, I have no concerns, not no concerns. I mean, there's concerns with Kyle Hamilton's combine testing, right? I do think when you go back and watch some of his 40 times, I think you can see he's not a track athlete, right? Like his start is kind of sloppy and hasn't mastered the technique of that, right? And he's also a really big player, you know, 220 pounds. I, I don't, you know, when you go to the tape and you don't see speed concerns and you don't see, you know, instinct or in any of these concerns that are now popping up in the combine, I think you have to lean into that a bit. Now, I think there's more reason, right? You can't just <clears throat> ignore data. I think there's more reason now to see him as, you know, a 10 to 15 player than like this consensus top three type of guy. I think there's mm -hmm. more reason to believe, buy into that, especially again, I probably said it a thousand times on this podcast, but positional value, right? Like safety is not an overly valuable position 
in terms of how much they're paid on the open market. Now, is it increasing in value as teams start to play two? Absolutely. More two high looks. You're looking for guys that can do different things. Safety position is getting increasing in on-field value by a lot. <clears throat> Same with interior defensive line, specifically those like two-gapping, run-stopping defensive tackles. Jordan Davis has more value now than he did five, year, five years ago when there was a lot more single high looks. So I'm a big Kyle Hamilton guy. I think he's going to be this type of player, right? That maybe it is a Derwin James like fall, you know, Derwin James falls to 17 overall to the Los Angeles charters. And is one of the more productive safeties when healthy, I think Kyle Hamilton could see a similar fall into this 10 to 20 range. And a team's going to get a really productive, versatile player. I talked to Brian Kelly uh, when he was still the coach at Notre Dame. And he said, I've never coached a more versatile player. I think that, 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 that comment from him and, and just the tape combined, I think does really just speak more to me than seeing him run, you know, a little bit slower than maybe people expected. Yeah, look, it's easy to say you can't cover wide receivers. And I've said it too, and that's fine. But when you have a guy that can play too high, single high, box, and cover tight ends, if you're a DC and you can't figure out how to use that guy, go get a new job, right? <laughs> I mean, that that is versatility. I agree with you. And I think once you get to the point, I get it. You want to pick the three offensive tackles over them, the top three or four pass rushers, the top couple cornerbacks. Those are, you know, big-time positions. I get it. But once you're to decide between him and, like, Trevor Penning, and, you know, guys like that, I, I don't mm -hmm. I don't see how you can, you know, just dismiss the, the even with the positional value thing and say, all right, at 11 or 12, uh, he's he's not worth that pick. Exactly. I, I don't see it. This wide receiver class, when do you start going there? And I guess the question that I find interesting, how big do you think the drop off is, Austin, from the Drake London Garrett Wilson area of this class to the picking sky more area of this class like for me would it shock me in three years that like sky more is a, a better player than more productive than chris Olave? i wouldn't be shocked by that how do you how big of a drop do you think it is between that kind of top 20 25 guys and the 30 to 45 type of guys in this class it, it, it's such a little drop off and i think it's a great point from you right i think that drake london chris Olave, jameson williams are my top three receivers in this class and they're in that kind of tier one in this class but like i think there isn't a drop off <clears throat> I don't think there's a drop off in talent until after like Christian Watson, who's wide receiver 12 on my board. Then you get to some kind of slot only types or big bodied, slower athletes. I think the first 12 receivers in this class all have tools and you know, can project as like productive players in the NFL. Like I said, there's a lot of high end wide receiver two ceilings in this class, right? I feel that about Drake London uh, as the number one player. And I feel that about George Pickens as my number seven player in this receiver class. So I do think that there is not a lot of drop off. And I think it could ultimately put, you know, make it to where Jamison Williams is you know, one of the highest drafted receivers in this class, even with the injury, Drake London. But then after that, you start to see, you know, this receiver class trip out a little bit more, more in the back end of the first round and the top of the second. So I think a lot of receivers are going to get drafted in the top 50. I think it could be eight plus type of guys, but not, you know, like, like I said at the top, right? I think Jamar Chase, Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddle are all better receiver prospects than any of the receiver prospects in this class. So I think a lot of teams will see that. I think the first receiver comes off the board in that either at eight, the Atlanta Falcons or 10 to the Jets. That's where I see the first receiver coming off the board, whether that's London or, or Garrett Wilson or hell, even Jamison Williams. But after that, I think it drips out a little bit um, into the late round one and then top of day two. You know, I think Jamison Williams is interesting before we jump off of wide receivers. Mm -hmm. Because you get to the second half of this draft and you have a bunch of teams that are trying to win now that need wide receivers, right? You mentioned the Saints already. They're trying to win now. Chargers trying to win now. Uh, Packers trying to win now. Chiefs trying to win now. Do you think that they get scared off by the ACL? They pass on him because they don't want to risk the guy that might not show up till October? 
mm-hmm. and he might drop a little bit further than he should be. Because for me, Austin, if he's healthy, he's my number one wide receiver in this class. I think his yeah. he's that different. Like you watch all these receivers, the one guy that looks different, that guy looks different, right? Yes. But exactly. do you think the injury might push him down a little bit or no? I think there's a chance, right? He's my wide receiver one in this class if he's fully healthy. He moves different, right? I think the, the way I've kind of explained it is I don't think there's a better mover in this class. Like he moves at a different speed. He's, he's kind of, he's really, he's similar to Olave in that he's like smooth with how he runs routes, but faster, right? He's more yeah. explosive. He can do so many different things. I think Jamison Williams, the concerns will be the injury. And there are maybe some other concerns, right? It doesn't play as strong as you'd probably want. You need to add that weight back. You know, in addition to like being healthy, I think another part of it is like he weighed in at the combine 178 and said he plays at 195, right? Adding that weight back, getting into the swing of things could push him into like an October type of start. He's his goal. And every time you talk to like, you know, the players that are, you know, recovering from these injuries, he wants to be ready by training camp, ready by training camp, ready by the preseason. I think it's more likely that he misses misses the offseason program and then is maybe you know starting to flow back in similar to like Rashad Bateman's timeline to yeah. return I mean, that's what I see more with Jameson Williams but that's going to drive him down and give some team a really valuable player does that rule out him being the first receiver off the board absolutely not I think there are teams that probably still view him as the wide receiver one and don't care if he misses hell the entire rookie season knowing what he can be in year two and year three I don't think he gets past the Chargers at 17 if I'm being honest I think that's the floor for Jameson Williams I'd be so excited to see him in that offense with Mike Williams and Keenan Allen. I think he's a perfect complement to what they already have in that offense. And hell, one of the best quarterbacks in the AFC as well. You want to see Justin Herbert throw the ball like 80 yards in the air? Yes. <laughs> there you go. Yes. Just That's what I want. <laughs> yeah, so do I. Me too. Uh, <laughs> um, Derek Stingley, this is going to air on Wednesday. We're recording this on Tuesday. So when people are watching this, they have likely will have seen the Derek Stingley pro day. Mm-hmm. Can he, you think, push himself. I know you guys see him there. I don't know if the rest of the world does. Can he push himself back into cornerback one conversation you think with a good enough pro day? I think he's already in the cornerback one conversation for some teams in the league, right? I think the media is a bit lower on him because they haven't seen him play a ton since obviously his you know true freshman season in that 2019 run with LSU. I'll say this, and I've said it the entire pre-draft process, I don't think we'll ever see as good of a season yeah. from a, a true freshman cornerback in the SEC ever again. Like It was the most impressive season I think we'll ever see. Borderline defensive player, right? And to do that at 18 years old against a flight of NFL caliber receivers is so rare that I'm buying into that. I'm buying into that projection. And you know, you hear you know some conversations about maybe Derek Stanley not being like an alpha in this class and not a chirpy corner, maybe not willing like toughness to play through injury and all that stuff. I don't know. I, I don't really buy into that stuff. I see it very similar to Thibodeau, right? Like I don't buy into some of these conversations that I'm not having with these players, right? I'm not having with these coaches. And I think oftentimes when you do talk to coaches that coach Kayvon Thibodeau or coaches there at LSU that coach Derek Stingley, you see, you hear different things. So I'm, I'm buying Derek Stingley's production in 2019. I'm buying the fact that he's one of the rare athletes in this class. I don't think he gets past Minnesota at 12. Like if he goes to Baltimore at 14, I think it's one of the bigger steals of the draft, right? And if he keeps dripping down, I would be stunned. I I mean, you're, you're, this is a really talented player that, has battled injuries and also battled, you know, what was obviously an interesting post championship run by Ed Orgeron and that coaching staff, right? There's a reason he got pushed out and there was some difference in opinion there. So I think he's had a really tough go in terms of injuries and just kind of like support there at LSU dating, coming after his 2019 season. So I'm buying into a lot of what he was and what he can be in the NFL. Don't miss your chance to experience a premier hospitality experience watching Giants games and world-class concerts in 2022 as a Giants suite partner. Limited full-season locations are available or place a deposit for individual games. Call 888-NYG-1925 or visit Giants.com suites for more information. 
All right, this is my fun thing I like talking to you guys at PFF with, because you guys do view these guys differently than others. You have more data than anybody. So give me a few guys that you guys really like that maybe the rest of the world isn't as high on that you think can give some teams some really good value on day two and day three. Some some really good value. I, I do think that I am, again, looking at this interior defensive line class, and it's like, you give me Travis Jones. Travis Jones on day two is a starter. I think he can be like a, 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 a Pro Bowl caliber talent that's probably not going to go on day one because it's just the value of the position and obviously like some of the small school stuff as well. But like you get you give me the, that starter value as an O's, who I think is a really good athlete that would have been more often highlighted as that if Jordan Davis didn't like legitimately like change. I was say, by the way, his testing was great. Like Jordan yes. Davis screwed that kid over. Like people, <laughs> exactly. It's totally true. Exactly. And I'll, I'll give you one sleeper. And this is a receiver I'm super high on. I just got done talking with him yesterday is Bo Melton of Rutgers, right? You, you hear really Rutgers, well too, man. You, you hear Rutgers and you're like, ah, you know, I don't know. It's, uh, you know, what, what happened? He's a four-star from Jersey and he had offers to Michigan, Boston College, these big power five programs, stayed true to Jersey and said, oh, I'm playing for Rutgers. My dad played for Rutgers. This means a lot to me. Four, three speed, smooth route runner. I compare him to Eddie Royal. Am I taking him over some of the like true outside guys in this class? Probably not. A lot of teams have already told him that he's going to play in the slot in the NFL, but man, I'm buying into that speed. I'm buying into that polish. He's a veteran type. He's played five years at Rutgers. You get that guy on day two, day three. I think he could slip to day three. I think you're getting a really polished player at the slot. And when you compare him to some of the other guys in this class that people do really like, I think he's comparable, right? Everyone likes Khalil Shakira, Boise State. I think he's comparable and even a better athlete. Everyone likes um, <clears throat> John Mechie of Alabama, Calvin Austin of Memphis. I'm right in that tier with him. I think Bo Melton's that good. I like him over David Bell. I like him over Romeo Dubs, Wandell Robinson, Kyle Phillips. I think Bo Melton is going to be this guy that on day two, day three, someone comes away really impressed with what he can do from the slot. You know, the one thing that impressed me about Bo Melton, you know, we – uh, we were both at the senior bowl. That second day was a mess. It was raining. It was nasty. Yes. Quarterbacks couldn't throw the ball. The best wide receiver that day was actually Bo Melton. And I thought he played great in that bad weather. And I think if you're a Northeastern team and you're looking for a guy that can, you know, he's a Rutgers kid. It makes sense. Jersey guy, right? That yeah. it, it, I thought that was a pretty impressive performance that he was not bothered by that rain at all. I, I do think that doesn't get brought up enough with non-quarterbacks, right? Everyone brings up, oh, you got a quarterback that can play in the weather and all this stuff. And, you know, I need a guy that can like really control. It's like, dude, you need receivers need that too. You know, yeah. you, 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 need, you need receivers that can play in the rain and play in the snow and play in cold weather. I think you need tight ends that can do that. That toughness, that extra layer of Jersey toughness, he definitely has that as well. All right, let's flip the script then. Who are the guys that you and PFF say, pump the brakes, you're way overvaluing this guy. This is a trap. I think in previous draft classes, one of those names would absolutely be uh, Trayvon Walker, right? He doesn't have the production among every pass rusher in the power five over the last five years, going back to 2017, he has the, uh, he ranks outside the top 150 in single season pass rushing production on true pass sets as a passer. I mean, that, that production I'm not buying into at all, but I think for him, compared to Rashawn Gary and compared to some of the other guys that we have been lower on, I'm buying into this high-end athleticism, and I'm also buying into the fact that he just didn't play a role that, you know, that was, like, catered to his strengths, right? I think what he's going to play in the NFL. I think another guy that I'm, like, lower on than probably the consensus is Trevor Penning. I've seen Trevor Penning mocked in the first, you know, top 10 picks, six overall, the Carolina Panthers. Love the grit, love the nastiness, but he also led the FCS in penalties last year. Yeah. Like, it, it's it's a 
player that I think has a lot of projectable athleticism, but needs a lot of polish, but that offensive line coaches will fall in love because he'll eat a leather football for breakfast. Right. And I think that in my opinion gets a little bit overvalued. Right. I think we've had, I've had a lot of conversations recently in this pre-draft process specifically with question marks around um, Derek Stingley is an alpha and Kayvon Thibodeau is committed to football. Right. I think there's a lot of, you know, as you know, we get continue to go through like this millennial phase, right. There's like intimidating there's intimidating off-field interests from a Stingley or a Thibodeau, right? For play, for coaches like Dean Pease, who still writes on paper and doesn't trust people who use computers and stuff. Like, there's a lot of intimidating interest, you know, intimidating interest from players. And I think with Penning, people immediately buy into this, like, oh my gosh, he's going to be so coachable. He loves football more than anything. That's great. And I think you can start to overvalue that in a process where maybe a guy that, you know, hey, likes to do other things, but also is a really productive player and has more polish could probably be more valued. All right, three more rapid fire. Favorite edge defender on day two. Wow, Arnold Ebiketti. Arnold Ebiketti of Penn State's my yeah, guy. Yeah, me too. I, I really like him like, too. I really like Ebiketti. There's a chance he doesn't make it to the second round, right? I think I feel very similar about Boye Mafe of Minnesota. Concerned a little bit about the arm length, though. Everyone's made a big deal out of uh, uh, Aiden Hutchinson's arm length, who's a guy who's a top five pick. But like Boye Mafe, I think also has sub 33 inch arms. He's explosive, but that shows up on tape. Arnold Ebiketti has got 34 inch arms, right? This guy, I think, can be really, really productive in the NFL. I'd honestly be stunned if he does get to day two. I think he's my favorite day two player if he does get that far. And I think another one too, Kingsley and Agbury, the, the South Carolina edge who. He's getting devalued in this class because he's not a high-end athlete. Great length, really good production in the SEC, high-character guy. I think on day two, you're not getting a world beater as a pass rusher, right? But I think you're getting a consistent producer and someone that you can lean on as a legitimate starting caliber piece. All right, I just learned something. I thought it was Enigbari. Say that again for me. <laughs> I think it's Enigbari, actually. I talked to him, and I think that's what it is, but it could be Enigbari, too. I think, I think no, it's No, I think you're right. I like it. All right. An egg bar A. I like that. All right, cool. All right, let, let, let's go tight end. We haven't mentioned the tight end, and that's probably because we might not have one go in the top 50 picks. Yeah. Do we have a tight end go in the second round? Who do you think it is, and who's a value play at that position in, like, round four? I don't think I'm taking a tight end in this class until like round three, round four. I don't love the tight end group. I don't think it's a really good group. I like Trey McBride of most of all of them right now, but like it's really close, right? It's a weird tier. I feel very similar about the running back class. I think the tight end and the running back class isn't that good this year. And then you factor in obviously two low value positions as well. It's like, okay, maybe you're passing on these even past round two, round three. So Trey McBride, Colorado State, impressed with the four or five time that he ran. He's a little bit smaller, shorter arms than what I look for at a tight end. That's what kind of pushes me to Dulcich, the UCLA tight end that didn't run that fast, but like you see more speed on tape. I think you see the play speed on tape and they'd leveraged him knowing that Kate Otten's an interesting one. Probably the biggest value though is going to be Jeremy Rucker. I think Jeremy Rucker has an opportunity to be the first tight end off the board, really good run blocker. And that's what people look for. And in a tight end class where I don't think there's a George Kittle, Travis Kelsey, Darren Waller type. I don't think you're getting anyone in this class that's going to be a legitimate receiving threat in the NFL. Go and get the guy who's maybe the best blocker. And if that fits your offense better than you know some of these other guys that'll be tier three, tier four type of receiving tight ends in the NFL. I think Rucker could be the value play. All right. Final question. When you guys got your pro initial draft guide out right after the season mm -hmm. and giant fans, sadly in, you know, December and January, we're calling us about the draft and they're like, well, why don't you just pick Tyler Linderbaum at number seven? And, and you know, yeah. you're going to feel great about it. Now, all of a sudden people are like, yeah, twenties. I know you guys love him. You watch the tape. There's not much not to love. I mean, look, he had some trouble with some nose tackles, like the Michigan game. He got pushed back a little bit. 
What do you think the process is going to be like for him as he tries to sell his Tyrannosaurus Rex arms and his 290 pound frame to NFL teams who see it on tape? You mm-hmm. love the production. He's from a great offensive line program, but the traits just aren't there. Yeah, I mean, he's an outlier. He's an outlier in that, you know, when he got to Iowa, you know, he was a very small player and not have a lot of weight. He's added a ton of weight. He doesn't have long arms, but he's overcome a lot of that, right? I think that, you know, when you bring up arm length, specifically along the offensive line, there are a lot of concerns when you get to the tier that he's in. It's very low percentile among centers. It's extremely low percentile among guards. He's a center only with really good production that has been outlier-like production for his size, especially playing in the Big Ten. I'm buying into that, but I'm not buying into the top ten. You know, I think there's higher-value positions and there's higher-value traits that you can kind of attract yourself to. I think Linderbaum is going to continue to prove a lot of people wrong, even me, right? I think he could even ultimately be one of the best center prospects that we've really seen over the last five years. But I think there are other players now in this class, considering the traits, right? You have to factor them in. It's similar to Hamilton, very similar to Hamilton, right? Hamilton is this top player. The traits are not maybe what people expected, but the production and the tape and, and what he's able to do, I think that's what you're buying into. It's going to push him down a bit, but not ultimately, I don't think out of the first round. I think Linderbaum's still going to be a first round player. I'd be hard pressed to see him really get past the Bills at 25. I think it makes a ton of sense. I think in that 20 to 32 range, there will be teams jumping at it. All right, f- final follow-up. If you're sitting there then at 20 and you say, I need an interior offensive lineman, they're all still there. Zion's mm-hmm. there. Green is there. Linderbaum's there. You can pick any one of those three guys. You have an equal need at guard and center. Which one of those three guys do you pick first, Austin? Which one do you pick second? Which guy do you pick third? It's tough, man. I I, I think Linderbaum probably makes is is probably my guy, but I I keep I keep struggling with Zion Johnson. Oh, I, I love Zion, Zion, man. Zion Johnson, long arms for the guard position, can play center and guard. Really has like a like start tomorrow type of frame for him, and start tomorrow type of game as well. I think Zion Johnson probably would be the guy I take because I I just feel so good, especially if you're drafting in that tier, right? If you're drafting in that range. Range. You're looking for guys that can come and compete and play right away. Zion Johnson's exactly that. And if the Cincinnati Bengals didn't add like four new starters along the offensive <laughs> line, I think he'd be a lot to go to them if he gets that far. But now I feel more confident that he could go to the Cowboys at 24, right? I think he can go a lot of different places in that 20 range because people are looking for starters at guard. And if you get one like Zion Johnson, I think that's going to be a win. And by the way, who's to say Zion's not your starting center in a year too, right? It's I mean, true. it's true. He, he can, I think he can do that too. I'm with you. My order would be Zion, Linderbaum, and then Green. Mm-hmm. Um, Green, I don't know his movement skills, even on tape, like he's powerful. He moves guys. I, he, he's, he's a little, he's a little unbalanced. He's a little yeah. sloppy the way he moves. His pass pro would, I think would worry me a little bit. Awesome. No, tell, yeah, yeah. Tell the folks about your podcast with Mike. We've had on the show, obviously, uh, everything else you're doing over Pro Football Focus. Yeah, definitely check out my podcast. It's Tailgate, wherever you get your podcast, talking NFL draft, college football, all that stuff all year round. And we also have Hutch coming out on April 13th, four-part podcast series where we sit down with Aiden Hutchinson and 50 other people to really tell his story. It's an, it's an interesting one. It's a crazy one to be a projected number one overall pick. A lot goes into it, and I think he details that very well. And we also go through the insane 2021 Michigan season, right? Ohio State win, in Ann Arbor, all that stuff. Fantastic on Hutch. And then make sure to check out PFF.com. A lot of content going into the draft. Do you know how much audio you actually got on tape for that Hutch podcast that you end up cutting it down? Is it? Yeah, like- it's about 12 hours of audio. That's going nice. to be about five hours. So we did, we did a lot, a lot of, uh, a lot of good stuff on the cutting room floor. It's a very saturated piece of content. So I'm excited about that. Should be great. Check out Austin. Good stuff, man. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Absolutely. Thank you. We're three weeks from the draft. Austin Gow from pro football focus. Stay tuned to the John Settle podcast. We'll cover it all.